You are listening to the Choose Your Struggle Podcast, a member of the Shameless Podcast Network. This week on the Choose Your Struggle Podcast, it's Brandy Izquierdo of the Safe Project. But first, Kid Metal, let's go. Things ain't always gonna go our way, but you can always win when you choose your struggle. And some battles will be yesterday, but today is for a new beginning. Choose your struggle, and don't worry about what they say, but you can always win when you choose your struggle. And you can bounce back just as you Come on and listen in to choose your struggles. Choose your struggles. Choose your struggles. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Choose Your Struggle podcast. It's so great to be with you all. I'm recording this early this week. I have a very busy week in, in, in a good way, preparing for uh, my, my second TED Talk next week, which is great. Excited about that. I just um, you know, finished recording a couple of virtual gigs uh, and things are starting to open up again. And, and that is all all fantastic. Uh, a couple of notes before we get into what this episode is about. This week, obviously, is the one-year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. I am... There's a, there's a mix of emotions there, obviously. It, it sucks that it took this atrocious act for more awareness to be turned to this issue, I've spent the last year since this really doing my best to educate myself uh, on alternatives to policing, the history of policing. I already, you know, as I've talked about in earlier episodes, I was already sort of strongly believing that we as a country need to do a better job of separating a lot of our actions from policing. After my own experience, the night that I overdosed, being physically assaulted by a police officer. But it's not okay to just say, let's, let's you know, defund the police with no, with no idea about what else we can do. So that's what I've done over the last year since this, the murder of George Floyd is educating myself on the histories of policing and, and alternatives because there are alternatives. And, and you're seeing a lot of places divesting money from police to give to other services. And that's the right answer. You know, the, this idea, well, we should just train more police. No, that's, that's silly. That's why we don't do that anywhere else. We don't expect any other services to be the be all end all, you know, and, and it's not fair to ask police to, to, to do that. They're not trained for that. And what they are trained for is too frequently or too quickly to go to their weapon. So I, in in honor of this terrible memorial, am, am, <laughs> that's my call. It's not your good egg. Your good egg is something different at the end of the episode. But my call to all of you this week is to, to spend some time educating yourselves on alternatives, on uh, ideas about how to take away money, but not just to do that, right? I mean, to, to do something good, take away the money and invest in mental health services, addiction services, the housing. These are the things that we need to be investing in. So this week's episode is with someone that I really respect. And sort of before I talk about her, let me talk about the organization. Y'all have heard me talk about Safe Project before. 
I, I found out about them. It, it was the fall of 2018. I went to the Atlantic Conference in D.C. And I saw the former vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, James Winnefeld, speak about starting this organization with his wife after losing uh, their son, Jonathan, to an overdose. And he talked about Mary's dedication, his wife's dedication to this to this cause and how this terrible personal experience really opened his eyes to to the the need for work around addiction services and and ending the deaths that that addiction can cause. Uh, Safe is doing some really incredible work. I, I was blown away when I saw him, and I say that in this episode because he was so vulnerable. And this was a conference where you had multiple members of the Supreme Court speaking. Uh, you had past uh, uh, people, everyone from Hillary Clinton to, um, I, I mean, uh, the, the list could go on, right? And here is this guy that I, I didn't really know about before, and he just blew me away. So I immediately got involved as one of their volunteers. And uh, now here we are three years later, and, and I'm very heavily involved. Uh, last week recorded a virtual roundtable for SAFE uh, that Brandy was on. And uh, in, taking part in this event that they have coming up in a couple of weeks on Tuesday, June 15th at 1.30 Eastern time, uh, they're calling it the, the SAFE No Shame uh, conversation on Twitter. And the way this works is if you search for the hashtag safe, S-A-F-E-N-O, shame, you can join the conversation. Um, it'll be uh, people chatting about how to end stigma and, and um, call for better treatment and better assistance around issues of, of mental health and substance misuse. Uh, so it, I'm really you know thankful to be a part of the organization in, as, a, as a volunteer um, and, and to be, as I say in this interview, to have worked with various members of their organization in different ways. Safe uh, interviewed me a, a year ago about my story. It's on their um, their blog. They list this podcast as one of their resources. And so to finally be able to sit down and chat with Brandy was such an incredible experience. So Brandy Izquierdo is the executive director. She is a person in long-term recovery herself. Uh, she is, you know, truly a person who cares deeply about this issue and is someone that I admire so much for the work she's doing, for the, what the work the organization is doing. And, and I know uh, that you're going to be touched by her story. It is, it's deep. She went there and I'm really impressed by her ability to do so. So uh, I, I, I thank her so much for the time. I thank Safe for all they're doing. And, and now, really, honestly, without any further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Brandy Iscardo of Safe. People will forget what you said. People will forget what you did. But people will never forget how you made them feel. That famous quote by the extraordinary Maya Angelou is exactly why I speak. It's why I tell my story and mix education around the topics of mental health, substance misuse and recovery, and drug use and policy with motivation, inspiration, and purpose. So when you're looking for your next keynote or breakout session speaker, reach out. Find me at my website, jshiftman.com, and I promise you, your employees, your group members, the students at your school, 
everybody will come away having learned something. And that's how we create change. Reach out today. Thanks for sharing the podcast with your friends. If you're listening on Apple, please rate and review or check out the review link in the show notes. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. So if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself, we will start from there. Sure. And hi, everyone. My name is Brandy Sierto. Um, I'm a person in long-term recovery, and I'm also the executive director of Safe Project. This has been, for my listeners, uh, y'all know because I've mentioned Safe a lot, uh, that this show is already listed on their resources page. I'm a huge fan. I'm part of their volunteer network. Uh, I've worked with pretty much every person on your team at this point in different capacities, uh, including your incredible Narcan Awareness Project a couple years ago, um, where I was emailing with Randy a bunch. Um, and you know, it's, it's, your work is so influential. This is a conversation that we have been planning for literally over a year. Uh, COVID obviously threw that through a loop, but we're finally here and it is an absolute honor to be talking to you, Brandy. So to start this conversation, as I do with everybody, if you wouldn't mind for my listeners sharing a bit about your story. Sure. Uh, before I get started, I just want to say I'm a big fan of you as well. Um, (laughs) Not because you, not just because of the um, organization aspect of things, but, you know, recovery to recovery, um, you're in it. And I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you exposing um, what needs to be exposed in terms of addiction. So thank you. Just, just to kind of jump it in, um, I'll give you a little bit about um, where I was, how I got here and where I am now in terms of recovery, uh, my personal story. And, you know, it's interesting. I don't get asked that story very often. And I I talk a lot about um, the addiction side of things and the substance use side and the recovery side of things. But I always find a place to talk about the story before the story, because I think we all have a story before the story. So just to break free, you know, the bottom line for me, just I didn't wake up one day and say, hey, you know what? This addict thing or this recovery or this addiction thing, I'm going to go ahead and and make that a career move. It's not something that happened. I mean, really, when I look back on my addiction, my addiction started at a very, very young age. And and I'm going to go into a little bit of probably rawness and authenticity and vulnerability, um, especially when it comes to being a woman in recovery. Um, You know, I remember at the early age, it was kindergarten and... I being in school, I I wanted to have this birthday party and, and I didn't care who came to the birthday party except for one specific dude, one boy, right? And I was like, man, if he doesn't come, I'm gonna be devastated, you know? And obviously these aren't the terms that I used in kindergarten, but you know, looking back on it and reflecting on my story, that addiction started at an early age and it didn't start um with substances, it started with validation. You know, and I and I look back on that, and as I continued to come up, um, I I grew up in a family where my dad really wasn't around too much. Um, he left my mom and I at around the age of three. I now know that there was a lot of um, there was a little bit of violence associated with that. Um, so she she did the right thing and she left, but he was still around, but he wasn't really my dad. Um, And I remember yearning for that, you know, dad, I really want my dad in my life. Why is my dad not here? And I think even at that time, such an early age, not recognizing what was happening, but um, 
there was always something I needed to fill, like a hole I needed to fill. Like I wasn't good enough or if I'm not good enough for my dad, then am I good enough for anybody? You know, and I, and I put those two, two pieces together at this point, especially with wanting that guy, I won't say his name, um, but putting that guy on a pedestal that if he didn't come, that I wasn't worthy. And from there, you know, it, um, my mom ended up getting remarried to my stepdad, who's a great dad, and he had his own mental health issues and, and concerns and challenges, but I didn't know that at the time. And my mom um, had two other children um, by him, my sister and my brother. And I was about seven years old when my sister was born. And my mom, I, I, I know it now, but at the time, I didn't really understand um, how each child um becomes a little easier and perhaps you're a little more attuned. She had me at 17. So she was a little more established. And I felt like really out of place. Like I didn't have a family or I didn't have any belonging. Um, and in that same, at that same time, I was actually going to Catholic school and, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. And it was interesting because I grew up in Baltimore and going down into the city, there's one side of the street that's more affluent. There's another side of the street that's not. Well, I was on the side that wasn't. And and I just, again, you know, going to school, not having the money and feeling like I didn't fit in really just played on me. And I, I didn't realize it at the time, but it, it just continued. That pattern just continued. And, um, you know, and at that point, um, it was my sister was probably around two or three years old, maybe a little older. And we were living um, in, in these row homes and my mom had to go to work. And we would be, ba we were getting babysat by the next door neighbor. Well, the next door neighbor ended up um, molesting me and um, a couple of other the girls around the neighborhood. I never really said much about it. The only thing that I remember at the time was the police officer, someone, one of my other friends actually said something and the police officer came to the door and told my mom. And right then and there, like there was this, this introduction into the police that I think was very traumatizing because I remember them coming in and handing, sitting me down on the couch after they told my mom and handing me a doll and asking me, you know, where did he touch you? And I'll never forget that. I remember the doll. I remember everything about it. Um, and from that point on, I kind of pushed it down. Um, the whole, the whole, you know, the whole thing, the whole, the whole event just down. Um, and what I realized um, was that there was a there was a level of permission that my body is my asset, um, and I say that because you know at the ripe age of maybe eight or nine, uh, that's how I felt, and and I was getting the attention, so I didn't see what was necessarily wrong with it, and you know to push those feelings, I didn't. I didn't understand how that was really molding me, but to push those feelings, my mom and dad, my stepdad had a liquor cabinet downstairs. And I remember going down and grabbing the liquor and it was, I was at the age of 11. And I, when I tell you, I got blackout, just fan spinning drunk. I, I mean, that's what it was. I was laying on the bed, the fan was spinning. And I was like, I'll never, ever do this again. I'll never do this again. And my mom drank uh, a lot and, um, you know, and I didn't want to be like her. I didn't want to be that person. So I tried to really push around that. But when I came out of that, I mean, of course, the nevers always become the forevers, right? So when I say I'll never do this again, or I'll never drink again, 
you know, it was only a matter of time because it took the feeling away and it took everything away and I could release my inhibitions and not be as uptight. So I continued down that path. I mean, I really tried to, um, to, to be the good girl because, you know, growing up in Catholic school and all that, I always felt like the bad girl lost my virginity at the age of 11. Didn't realize at the time that it was rape. Um, but it was, and, uh, it just continued from there. It was like, I was looking for validation outside of myself and I stopped with the substances for a little while and went to the men. Uh, I'm very open about it. There was a lot of promiscuity going on. Um, and my first time I got pregnant was at the age of 14 and did not end up going through with that pregnancy, but at the age of 16, I got pregnant again. Um, and at that point, this was my my second boyfriend because my first one at the age of 14 left. And I'm, I was so heartbroken, like what was wrong with me, that I again had to fill that void and I found uh, someone else. And I remember standing at this point, I was at my grandmother's house and I remember standing in the, this was back in the day when they actually had um, landline phones and actual cords. So... <laughs> So I couldn't go anywhere. I just had to kind of stand there and let him know that I was pregnant. And he told me that if you don't go through with this pregnancy, that I'm not sure I can be with you anymore. And what that translated to me, it translated to me as he loves me. He wants to be with me. And we're going to start this family because that's what it's all about, right? It's about this traditional, I'm going to stick and stay with him. It's going to be great. We're going to have this white picket fence, everything I'm supposed to do to be this good girl again. And I stuck and stayed in that relationship for 19 years. Um, I ended up having four children with him. And in having those four children, the one thing that I used to always joke about was, you know, having kids is the only thing I can complete um, or I can finish successfully. So I was like, I'm built to breed, you know, and I stuck and stayed in that relationship for a very, very long time and a lot of toxicity, not realizing that, that um, I didn't know what healthy was. So it, it, it just continued on um, at, after my second child. Um, I was 21 when I got pregnant with my second child. I was married at that point, and I felt like I was on my road to success. I was married. He had his own room. The baby did. Everything was great. Uh, but what I didn't, what was blindsiding was the fact that at this point, I'm 21. I'm of legal age. I can go out and drink. Um, having the baby early on. I felt like I lost a lot of my my childhood and I lost a lot of that teenage time. I dropped out of school in 10th grade having her. So I went out, I partied, you know, and I partied hard. When I talk about partying hard, it was back to that um, people carrying me out of the clubs. There was no moderation for me. I was either all in or I wasn't. And I, you know, my nevers, like I mentioned earlier, my nevers became my forevers. I never thought I would do hard drugs, you know. I was, alcohol was okay. I never did the hard drugs. And then I found myself at a point where I was doing Coke, ecstasy, popping pills, um, all that just to get by and just to maintain. And, and that same point, at that same point, I was also taking um, diet pills. I don't know if anybody remembers the phenamine and fendimetrazine, but I was popping them and I wasn't popping them as prescribed. Um, and that's when online access to prescriptions were available. And I was hustling my doctors, um, shipping men in and out. It was just, I was a hot mess, you know, and one of my, one of my fears was, oh, I don't ever want to get locked up or I don't ever want to go to jail. Well, let me tell you, the universe saw fit 
that at the tail end of it, um, I found myself in a in jail cell surrounded by concrete blocks. I was, um, I had actually had two different charges. I had charges up in Pennsylvania, was facing seven years. Um, and for a violation of probation, I was uh, facing a year and a half to four in upstate prison in PA. And I was also facing 11 years in, in Maryland. And I remember being in the prison, the prison cell and, and just sitting there. I was actually on psych watch. I had to detox in the Adams County prison. It was the most, it was horrible. You know, the hallucinations. Um, I didn't know why they were checking on me every 15 minutes. I'm like, they're like, Isierto, you need to go to sleep. I'm like, you need to stop checking on me because you keep flashing this damn light in my face and I can't sleep. How do you sleep like that? Not realizing I was, I was detoxing. I had no concept of what detox was, what addiction was. You know, I didn't have a problem. My only problem was is, is that I was in jail and I had no idea how I got there. You know, there was like no revelation that perhaps some of the things that I was doing put me in that position. So I went there, I went to, um, you know, the prison, I was about two seconds away from a turtle suit. Um, they were going to lock me down. And I, um, I came out of there and what I didn't, the little tiny bit that I did know, I knew to ask for treatment. I knew that, that there was a thing called treatment. And when I asked about the treatment piece of it, I wasn't asking about treatment, Jay, because I wanted to um, go into recovery. I had no concept of what that was either. I wanted to get out of jail. And I knew that was my ticket out of jail. Um, I'll go back a little bit, but, um, the, you know, the, the, the domestic violence piece, what really got me put into the, to the prison system was that, um, my ex-husband, he's now my ex-husband at the time when I was really trying to break free from the domestic violence. I mean, there were protective order after protective order after protective order coming down and there was no support. I had no support because, you know, old school family style, my grandmother, for example, was like, oh, well, you need to stay because that's what they did back in the day. And, you know, I was torn. I'm like, do I stay? Do I not stay? So, you know, after protective order, after protective order, we finally got to a point of divorce court. And I remember coming home from divorce court. We weren't divorced yet. The judge ordered mediation. Um, DEA was at my house. And when I talk about DEA, I pull up and, you know, SWAT, like full blown, you know, rifles or assault weapon. I don't know what the hell they were. Not familiar with guns, but they were some big guns. And I'm like, what the heck is going on? And come to find out um, my ex-husband, the day before the divorce court uh, hearing, came over to my house and told me, if you back me into a corner, I'm going to come out fighting. And I, there, I was not anticipating him shipping DEA to my house and Child Protective Services to my house. And it's like in the split second, my entire life just flipped. Every single thing that I feared came, came full circle. And I was just standing there in front of um, SWAT and Child Protective Services. And I lost everything in the matter of hours, you know. And a week later, he took the house too, and I was homeless. So... So before we move on to the recovery side, I want to make sure we answer, we ask some of these questions because yeah. I don't want to get the whole thing. So, so, you know, first off, I want to go all the way back. 
and say, you know, thank you for telling this story. There's a lot in there that would be easier not to tell. So thank you for, 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 for doing that, for your vulnerability. Let's start with the piece about your, you know, your childhood. And, and sadly, this is something we hear a lot of is that, you know, when it comes to things like, um, you know, the disgusting and just revolting sadness of, of child molestation, the person you know, the headlines talk about the jail term and, and the prosecution of the, the the offender. We don't hear anything about help being given to the victims. This isn't a focus of these conversations. And yet, of course, that's so much more important. You know, why is it or, or thinking back on your own experience, was any sort of help offered to you at the time? No, there wasn't a lot of help, help um, offered to me. You know, I, my mother and I've had a couple conversations about it. Um, and she said she wished she would have gotten me into counseling. But I think there was a, you know, me pushing it down, like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, that there was not any exploration. And there was definitely no help. Um, I never really talked about it. You know, and there was a time I'm like, maybe it didn't even happen. So there isn't a lot of help, especially with childhood trauma. Um, because we don't recognize it, you know, we just don't recognize it. And, and I think more people in recovery speaking out and providing some education and, you know, the, what happened to me or the story before the story, we can start recognizing that, um, perhaps getting that professional help or support is necessary, even though it may not seem vital at the time. So yeah, there's definitely a a gap in services there. And and I think it, it isn't uh, for any of those of us who do this work. It's not surprising, sadly, when someone who goes through an experience, any sort of childhood trauma, but especially sexual assault, ends up turning to uh, substances in an unhealthy way. It ends up uh, developing an issue of substance misuse because, as a lot of uh, sort of drug user rights activists say, that's you know, an unhealthy response, but that's what they're there for is to block out a lot of these memories about a lot of these experiences. And and you almost see a one-to-one correlation of people who go through childhood trauma who end up developing either substance misuse or addiction issues. Absolutely. You know, and I think uh, even with that, I think that there's a connection there that, um, you know, there's an entry point in terms of mental health. Like, how do we start really peeling back the layers to understand that perhaps, you know, there were entry points or there were pivotal moments of intervention that could have taken place um, to perhaps curb some of this? This is not to say it's going to happen for everyone, but the reality is, you know, it's that numbing. It's how do I go out? If I'm, if I can't be a good girl, how can I go out and be the life of the party? Um, And that's really where it went for me. It was, it was me just saying, you know what? I'm going to hurt you before you hurt me. And here's how I'm going to do it. And, you know, thinking that it's not going to affect anyone else or impact you. And then you get blindsided and you're, you're in it and you're in the grips of addiction and you don't even know it's coming. So this is always a tough question because hindsight is always 2020, but I like to ask this of people in, in like you and I who are in recovery, how much do you think, honest education 
and it would have would have made a difference in your experience. And for for you in your particular story, it's not just honest education around uh, substance misuse and that numbing, as you just said, but also education around mental health, also education about uh, sort of a different uh, life education that that success or that happiness is not directly equated with a traditional form of family or of marriage or of, uh, you know, the white picket fence and all that kind of stuff, like you were saying, how much would a different level of education have mattered in your experience? So I think that's a two for Jay. I think that it's definitely the education, but it's the implementation of that education that is so important when we're talking about this. We can educate till we're blue in the face. I mean, we all know um, the D.A.R.E. program, like say no to drugs. You know, I I was there. I was there during that time. I, I heard it. You know, this is your brain on drugs, all of that. So the education was there, but really it's also about the implementation of that education and, and being a parent myself now and, and um, living life with teenagers, four, four children altogether. I have to understand that, yeah, there are mental health aspects to this, but what do I do about it? How do I get them the help that they need? How do I get them the services they need? How do I build resiliency skills in these in these kids? Um, how do I get them to be attuned to their feelings and, and having those conversations where we're not all shut down like that traditional men don't cry, um, women take care of the home? How do I implement all of this? And I think there's an there's there's that tool too. It's not just enough to go into a conference or you know, um, uh, an auditorium and say, hey, there are mental health issues out there. It's really providing the resources behind it um, that's going to make the change. So let's let's skip back ahead now. And, and you are sitting in a prison cell. You you were going through detox. And, and I love that you sort of said that you had no comprehension, right? Because I, I had the same thing. I literally went through step-down detox. It took me almost four months. And yet I still didn't think of myself as someone struggling with addiction at that point. So uh, you're going through this. How do we get from that moment to, to now? What's the rest of the story? So, you know, I actually was transferred over to general population. And I remember at the time in, being in Gen Pop, the girl, the ladies would ask me, they're like, how do you, how, what are you doing? How are you doing this? I'm like, what are you talking about? They're like, you don't sit at a table, one table and eat breakfast, lunch and dinner. You, you really just talk to everybody. And that to me was a, a pivotal moment because even inside that, that cell or inside that general population, I was asking people like, what happened to you? I was so curious. I'm like, I know that we, we don't get in here. We get in here because of the stuff that has happened to us. So pulling from that lived experience, um, and that's really how it happened. You know, I started uh, talking to the other women in there and hearing their stories. And a lot of them are trauma induced or domestic violence um, associated or child protective services. All of these different aspects and components that come together that really are a combustible moment. And then you end up in this in this prison cell. Right. And just talking to them and saying, hey, you know, I remember getting out of that and saying, I'm coming back for you. I'm not quite sure how I'm going to come back for you, but I'm not going to forget you because I am you. Um, and then I, you know, I was really just shipped over to treatment and started started that journey of treatment. And that is quite honestly how I learned about the disease of addiction 
and I was around other people who were struggling with the same the same challenges. And when they told me that addiction is not a moral failing, it's a disease, I was like, ah, oh. that was eye-opening and breathtaking to me. Because at that point, I was like, things can change. Things can be different. Um, and I just have to put the work in, um, you know, to do it. So you get out and you are, if I, if I read this correctly, you're 10 years in recovery now, right? I am. Congratulations. I, I, I was 10 years in 2020 and actually had a long trip planned that weird coincidentally included stopping in DC to meet with you. And then of course, uh, COVID happened. That was actually part of my, my 10 year celebration was I was going all over the East coast for different stuff. And DC was a part of that trip. Nice. Um, and so I'm 11 years now, but you, um, are now before we actually get into safe, which we will in a second, uh, you didn't, you know, come out and immediately go to work in this. You you kind of have, have done some other incredible work. It would look like just from your brief bio, all centered around helping people. Is that right? Absolutely. Um, as a matter of fact, I have to chuckle at it because this was definitely even in in my darkest of times. Never thought that I'd be in the behavior health world at all. It was not a career move. Um, I thought I was going to be some corporate, you know, working for Hewlett Packard or, you know, I had big dreams, big dreams. But the reality uh, for me was that coming out in from treatment and really still going through a lot of my legal stuff, I was still had a lot of justice involvement that I had to take care of, cleaning the wreckage of my past um, and acknowledging that. But I would go to a, the treatment center all the time. Um, for girls who were early on in recovery. And I remember asking all, every time I would go in, how do I get a job in this? How do I get a job in this? Because I was just taught through the process of recovery to give back what was freely given to you. And I really wanted to help other people. So, you know, I just kept asking and kept asking. And then finally it got to a point where maybe I got on their nerves. I don't know. <laughs> it's fine. But they finally said, hey, well, the director's here. Why don't you, she's willing to do an on-the-spot interview for you. And I don't, I know this is an explicit uh, podcast, so I about shit myself. I'm going to be really <laughs> honest. I was like, oh my goodness, I wasn't ready for this. This door just opened up. And I remember sitting there in front of her, Jane, and one of the questions that everyone asks um, as a leader, like, where do you see yourself in five years? And I had nothing to lose. So I said to her, I see myself in your seat in five years. And she laughed at me. She chuckled. And I was like, no, you don't understand. I do see myself in your shoes in five years. I was, I've always been very um, outgoing and driven, uh, whatever it was in. So um, needless to say, I, I didn't get that job. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, man, that really sucks. Um but I didn't get that job because I didn't have enough recovery time under my belt. But, you know, honestly, I'm glad I did not. It was actually a counselor tech um, and it was probably not the best position for me. But she I I will say I'm in a 12 step fellowship. I'm very open and honest about that, too. And I was heading down to share a meeting at one point and she called the, the director of that organization, called me back up and she said, look, I can't hire you because you don't meet the qualifications. Uh, you don't have enough recovery time under your belt. She said, but how about they have this thing called peer support um, and the Carroll County Health Department is is hiring for this peer support thing. Why don't you try it out? Well, it was a state job and I have a felony. 
And I said, I'm not sure, you know, I was working in America's best wings just to pay my restitution. So I wouldn't go back to jail. Um, by the way, I was the best damn cashier you'd ever meet. I can make the <laughs> hell out of some lemon pepper wings. I'll tell you that. I have no doubt that that yeah. is true. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, I go back in, come to find out the job had already closed. I said, well, you know, again, I have nothing to lose. Um, poured my heart out on the cover letter and let them know I was a person in recovery and I just wanted to get back. Now, mind you, Jay, the one thing about this particular job is it was in the same county where I was arrested. There was domestic violence, child protective services. So I knew, and it was a small rural county. So I knew everyone. And that was actually one of the places I attempted treatment. Um, and, you know, the, the administrator called me up. She said, you must have said something because they want to open the job back up and they want to, they want to interview you. Wow. And, and I tell you, I'm I'm not a really good singer, but I was going up to that interview at the time and Alicia Keys, this girl is on fire. <laughs> yeah, that was um that was coming on. And I it was just very inspiring to me. And I sat at the table um, and was interviewed. And I literally when you talk about vulnerability, I literally cried during that interview. I said, I don't know if I'm going to get this job. I don't know if I'm worthy of this job, but I am just truly grateful for you all of believing in me enough um, to interview me and give me a chance. And I got the call and I got that job. And um, it was as peer support uh, was kicking off around the nation, especially on the substance use side. And I got in that into that position and um, that's where it all started. Well, before we, we turn our attention to uh, SAFE, the organization that you're now running, let's pause and shout out where people can follow you online and find you if they're interested in your work. Sure. I don't have any of those tw Twitter handlers or anything. Maybe I'm showing <laughs> my age. Um, but yeah, the way you can really find me is um, www.safeproject.us um, on the About Us page. Or you can email me at brandy, B-R-A-N-D-E-E, -E, at safeproject.us. Y'all know I love to read, and almost every episode of this podcast includes a recommendation to check out an awesome book. From Adid Jaffe's Abstinence Myth to Johan Hari's Chasing the Scream, I'm constantly looking for new books to learn from and enjoy. That's why I'm super excited to partner with Bookshop. Bookshop is a wonderful website that helps you find all your favorite books and support your local neighborhood bookstore in the process. I've bought everything from textbooks to Star Wars novels on Bookshop, and I've supported my local store with each transaction. Best of all, my bookshop link will allow you to see all the books I've mentioned on the show right in one spot. So check out Bookshop today using the link in my show notes or go to bookshop.org shop CYS and you'll find all the awesome books you want and support the podcast in the process. Check it out today. Subscribe to my Patreon for behind-the-scenes looks at the podcast, sneak peeks, and bonus data. You'll also get a discount on Choose Your Struggle merch. Find it at patreon.com slash chooseyourstruggle. You are now working with an organization that, again, I think my listeners all know because I've talked about it uh, all y'all before, and, and you've come up multiple times. Uh, but how did you get involved with SAFE? Um, so can I backtrack a little bit on that and how that yes, ended please. up happening? Okay. Yeah. Um, well, honestly, you know, my career started off in direct services. Uh, I was providing peer support services and 
What I realized through that process, um, I really enjoyed um, state and local government. And even more, what I enjoyed was challenging state and local government, uh, which means that you have to move out of state and local government. And I can give you some of that little insight there. But how I ended up at SAFE, I was actually working at um, Faces and Voices of Recovery. There's a whole trajectory to the career process for me. But I was working at Faces and Voices in Recovery, and they do some great work. Um, they do great work in advocacy, um, especially for the recovery community organizations. But I also felt that I needed to do more. Um, there's more to this than just the recovery aspect of things, uh, especially with my own lived experience and that story before the story. And I don't know what happened, Jay. I mean, I was just kind of browsing LinkedIn one day and um, saw this organization came up, which I thought was pretty ironic because I actually shared um, the Winnefeld story for Faces and Voices of Recovery uh, when SAFE initially had launched. And I thought it was a really interesting organization. Not really quite sure what I was getting into, but I said, huh, they're hiring for this new executive director. Of course, every position that I've ever taken in the behavior health world, I always feel like I'm not worthy or perhaps I'm not good enough. I'm going to just be honest. Um, but, you know, it was really intriguing to me because the, how they had this structure set up, it wasn't just about a recovery. It was about like all these lines of operation and, you know, they really got it when it came to um, how everything is interconnected. So I said, I'll just throw my hat in the ring. Uh, can't hurt. What can they do? Say no. That's fine. Um, and next thing I know, I am leading a national nonprofit organization for um, the former vice chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and his wife, who was amazing. And, it, you know, it's been uh, awesome ever since. I don't know what else to say about that. So yeah, to, to clarify for the listeners, uh, Sandy Winnefeld is the former uh, vice admiral of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Was that his official title? Vice chair of the Joint Chiefs. Vice of Staff. chair. Thank yep. you. Yeah, um, very uh, very commendable career. I saw him speak. Uh, this would have been two thousand and shoof. 18, 17 at the Atlantic conference in mm -hmm. uh, DC. And, you know, those conferences, you, you, you have some pretty well-known people. There were multiple members of the Supreme court, in including the late great uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg who spoke. And the one who stands out to this day to me was Sandy. And the reason was, was his vulnerability. He was up there and that's kind of his thing, right? Is that he's going, look, if you see me on the outside, I'm this guy who made it to the highest of highs in the U S government in my position. And here I am talking about the worst day of my life, losing my son. That to me stuck with me over all these other incredible people that I saw speak that week. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting because, you know, even approaching this organization, it wasn't, for me, there was no motive behind it. Um, I didn't really even connect that Sandy was the former vice chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff until I actually was hired and, and kind of got in there. Um, what I what I really drew me to the organization was that vulnerability piece. It was also the fact that, you know, in the, in the recovery community, um, between individuals who are in recovery and family members, there can be a little um, strife and turmoil. Um, you know, based on our past experiences, um, our feelings, our grief, everything that's happening, there's a whole lot of components all moving at one time. 
And when I, you know, when I got into this organization, the and and still to this day, the only thing I ever think about is I have a family that lost their son to addiction, um, and that hurts me to the core. Um, and I'm like, man, we, you know, we need to work together on this. We need to figure out how to change, how to change the paradigm. And that's still what I think. I don't think of Sandy as the vice chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I don't think of Sandy as an admiral. Um, he's all of that. You know, there's a lot of respect that I have for him. But what I do think of him as is a dad who lost his son and a mom for Mary who lost her son. And I will do everything that I possibly can, um, just like they will, to not have other families go through that same thing. Um, and that's that's what really draws me and keeps me motivated. So you're hired as the 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 new executive director of this up and coming organization. Is now it really established itself as one of the heavy hitters around this issue. Talk us through. I mean, it, it, actually, we don't really have time for everything Safe <laughs> does because we'd be here for a while. So talk us through a, just a couple of examples of Safe's work. Now, I already mentioned the Narcan Awareness Project, which, as my listeners already know, that led to me going to multiple pharmacies and where I used to live in South Carolina, asking for Narcan and reporting back to Randy that not a single one of these places had it. So so that's one of this, the, the things you're doing is this awareness. What else is it is uh, is safe working on that we should be aware of? Yeah, so it, it's pretty interesting. When I first started off, we had the safe campuses and safe communities. Um, we didn't call them initiatives at, at the time. We just knew that they were there, right? And we wanted to work in those spaces. Um, for a lot of different reasons. And then there were lines of operation. What it really called for was real, uh, I wouldn't say a restructure, but an expansion and an identification within this space and beyond. Um, so, you know, you mentioned um, the volunteer aspect of the Narcan and the Naloxone distribution. We have our four initiatives, safe campuses, safe communities, uh, just recently uh, safe veterans. And now we're up and coming with safe workplaces. What we realized from our own lived experience, um, both from my COO's lens, uh, Sandy and Mary's lens, and my lens, is that there are different stakeholders involved in each aspect of this of these initiatives. So how we approach them is going to be different. And you know, obviously, we funnel our six lines of operation through them: public awareness, full spectrum prevention, prescription and medical response, law enforcement and criminal justice, treatment and recovery, and family outreach and support. So some of the things that we do, for example, in safe campuses, um, one of the things that we want are um, uh, see we want to make sure that there are recovery communities or um, recovery initiatives on every campus in the United States. Uh, we know that that's an important piece. There's a heavy hit or heavy lean on prevention, but how can we shift that and move that in the direction to make sure that um, every school has uh, safe spaces for recovery? So that's one of our initiatives, and we've been doing that for quite a while. That was from the inception. Uh, we have our Collegiate Recovery Leadership Academy, where we bring students in. We hook them up with mentors. Um, we really teach them some leadership skills. They come out of it with projects um, and new connections and networks. We also have our reconnected. So if individuals are graduating from college or alumni, that they can connect throughout the world or throughout the nation. Safe communities, that's a big fish to fry. I'll say that right now. Um, there are communities all over the place. It was really taking a look um, and doing an environmental scan. Where are, the, where are the gaps? Where are the seams that need to be kind of sewn up? Um, 
There are a lot of great organizations doing a lot of great stuff out there. The last thing we wanted to do was fumble over them or duplicate the services because we know funding is a huge aspect. Um, so we are very diligent uh, when it comes to building our safe communities out and saying, hey, where can we fill these gaps? So we've built a lot of different things. We have our community playbook. Um, we're getting ready to go live soon with our safe solutions, which is um, an interactive hub where we can provide some technical assistance because I think you know, what I talked to you about was that implementation piece. It's not enough to educate. It's how do we implement? Um, so the safe solutions pieces are um, uh, connected to our community playbook to really guide and work with communities, um, a person-centered approach to communities and strengths-based approach to communities and really getting them to develop programs and implementing programs that are fit for them. We have our safe workplaces. There are a lot of um, organizations out there that are working on recovery-friendly workplaces. A lot of that is in concentration uh, in terms of behavioral health. So it's really important for us to actually work with corporations or businesses that perhaps are not as aware of mental health and substance use uh, and starting to have those conversations. And then finally, safe veterans. Uh, safe veterans, for example, it's not just the veterans that we work with. We work with family members um, and caregivers uh, to make sure that there are programs in terms of wellness. Um, it's a very siloed um, initiative a lot of times or a siloed topic where uh, individuals who are, are either veterans or family members are a little more apprehensive to talk about their addiction because of the stigma associated with it. Um, so we're just doing a lot of different stuff. Uh, I think one of our new products that is pretty in innovative is our bridging prevention and recovery effort. Um, we also call it BPR, where it's not just about prevention on one end and recovery on another end. Um, recovery, individuals in recovery, such as you, myself, all these different people who have these lived experiences can really help guide and direct um, the prevention aspect so other families don't have to go through it. So we've been doing that. Just a lot of different stuff, a lot of moving parts, as you, as you made it very clear. Um, the one thing that's really cool about SAFE is it's not everyone in recovery. It There are people in recovery. There are people that are not in recovery, people who have experienced behavioral health, those who haven't, all coming together and saying, hey, here's the how I see it. Let me run this by you. How do you see this? And moving together, um, you know, simultaneously just to, to get things done. And and you said a, a very, two two things that I want to uh, really hype up, and which is number one, uh, your your BPR is you're very clear about this. You're sort of no bones about it. It is evidence based programming, and that is something that we, again we could go off on a long a long conversation about how that tends to lack at times in in these spaces. That there's a lot of different ideas around these things, and not enough of them are evidence based uh, treatment or or ideas. Period. So so I really appreciate that about safe is that you're, you guys are like, you know, we don't have time for that. We, we want the things that are going to help people. We're not really interested uh, if it's not, you know, truly going to help someone. So thank you for that. But, but the other part that I really love, because it so closely aligns with my work, is the focus on stigma. Mm. You know, you have, uh, this is going to come out the end of May. And one of the things you're doing right now, this month, is the No Shame Pledge. 
uh, which I signed before it was even out publicly. I was on the email that, that when it first dropped. And, and of, clo- of course, not only did I sign it, but I put it out everywhere and shared it everywhere because I think it's so important, you know, that the, the evidence-based uh, education is so incredibly important. But if we can't even talk about these things, we don't get to that education. It gets hidden behind the, oh, we don't talk about those issues kind of uh, BS. So I love that about SAFE is that there is no, uh, you know, as, as the old saying goes, pussy footing around these issues Mm -hmm. you are like we are going to talk about it we're going to talk about it in an honest and empathetic way and we are going to keep hammering this home until people understand yeah absolutely i mean the no shame i you know we've had a lot of uh traction on the no shame and it was really slow moving at first but it you know one of the things that we wanted to do was create a national movement to combat that stigma surrounding um uh treatment and talking about uh mental health and substance use disorder Um, You know, we know that stigma acts as a barrier. It's a barrier both internally to the behavioral health system. It's a barrier in recovery. You know, there's stigma within stigma within stigma. So it's really important for us to have those candid conversations and talk about it. And this to me is just an entry point for that. The more people that we can um, make aware of small little snippets, um, acknowledging that stigma is there, creating safe spaces for individuals to have these candid conversations, these vulnerable conversations the better off we're going to be in the long run. Um, and so, yeah, we've, we're, we're pushing the no shame. We've been pushing it for quite a while. So thank you for taking the pledge. <laughs> I greatly appreciate it. Did you put your picture out there just yet? That's a good question. I have to go back and check. I don't remember. I took it so long ago. <laughs> well, take it again. We've revamped it. Um, take, a, take another gander at it because uh, we are now printing certificates because we wanted to make sure that, you know, we put faces to those individuals who have taken the pledge. Um, And then we're going to start a panel series uh, for the No Shame to really start having vulnerable conversations about what what shame looks like and really how do we internalize that shame. Because I think, you know, just saying there's no shame in getting help for mental health and substance use disorder is, is just the beginning. So it's really how do we open those doors and when those doors are open, are we ready to run? Um, And that's the question that I ask all the time. Well, I will definitely take it again and happily promote it again. And if you need any help uh, talking about ending the stigma and uh, just let me know, as it literally says on the homepage of my, uh, my, my uh, podcast network that I started, fuck shame, stigma kills. Yes. So I am, I am there for it. That is what I do. Well, last question on this before we get into the final ones. Uh, if someone is really just like, I am just so impressed with what she's talking about. I want to get involved with SAFE. How do they do that? What do they do if they want to be involved with, with all your work? So there are a couple things that you can do. Obviously, um, first and foremost, visit us on at www.safeproject.us. Uh, take a look around, uh, see what you're interested in. But there's also a volunteer page that you can connect with and sign up um, to become a volunteer. Uh, and again, you can also shoot us an email and say, hey, how do I get involved? How do you need help? We're willing to take the help in any way we possibly can. So you can do it that way as well. You can visit us on Facebook, on Twitter, um, or, you know, just pick up the phone. It's always good to have just a conversation old school style. 
And if you if you do reach out, listeners, let them know you heard him, heard Brandy on the Choose Your Struggle podcast because then they'll already know that you're an amazing person and, and they'll get you involved pretty quickly. So, Brandy, one more time before we go to the final questions, other than the website, which you so helpfully just dropped, where can everybody find uh, – where can everyone find SAFE online? Um, they can find us online at Facebook. Um, just look up SAFE Project uh, and you can find us on Twitter – um, you know, I'm going to be real honest with you, Jay. I don't have the Twitter, uh, the, the Twitter, <laughs> I'm not a Twitter person. I have communications that do that. Um, but also you can, uh, do the no shame pledge even and tag us at, um, hashtag no shame pledge, uh, and we'll be tagged on that and you can find us that way as well. Well, there you go. Definitely take the no shame pledge. All right, Brandy, I finished the podcast with the same two questions every time. Number one, not just during COVID, although obviously over the last year and a half, what self-care habits work for Brandy? Mm, that's a, oh my goodness, that's a tough one. Um, this is going to be an odd one. There are two things that are, the, the two self-care habits that I have is one, bubble baths. Okay, You're I the love second it. person, second one to say bubble baths. I the love bubble baths. In the last couple of months, too. There I you love go. it. Um, the other self care habit for me, which sounds really odd, is staying busy and taking care of of adulting. Uh, you know, it's always been an, an issue or a downfall for me that I would never take care of my adulting, um, and I've really just I just drive through. So it's if I have things to do. I create things to do lists and I really feel good about checking them off. Um, like, man, I feel accomplished. And I, you know, and just quickly that stems back to the fact that, you know, in active addiction, I didn't do anything. So for my mental health, I need to be structured, organized and um, driven. And I love school and I love dogs. That's <laughs> well, we shared that last one. My, my, as we're recording this, my dog is sitting here next to me. There's a fly in the room, and that is her biggest pet peeve in the world. She cannot leave it alone. All she's doing is following this thing around the room. Uh, and I love the so I love this staying busy thing. And as my listeners know, that's a big part of choose your struggle. Like you, when I was at my worst, when I was in my lowest points of, of my struggle, uh, I, I wasn't able to choose what I was struggling anymore because my struggle was to avoid withdrawals. My struggle was to get off my bed, out of my bed, off my couch, and do something with my day. And so now that I'm in recovery, that is the meaning of choose your struggle. I am choosing to struggle for these things instead of literally just staying alive. So I, I appreciate that. I second that. I, I think checking things off a to-do list is very cathartic and definitely helps in self-care. All right, last one before I let you go here. Uh, we've now spent the last almost an hour listening to you, why you're amazing, why all the work SAFE is doing is amazing. But this is your chance to shout out some other people, whether it's podcasts you listen to, books you're reading, shows you're watching, whatever the case is, what should we go follow? Oh my goodness. I, I'm going to be real honest with you. Um, I do not do any of that. And I'm going to be honest because I am actually working on my doctorate. So congratulations. Show, thank you. Thank you. I'm at the tail end of that. So I don't really uh, follow any or follow anyone or do any of that type of thing. Um, the one thing I will say, I will give a shout out to partnership to end addiction. Uh, they have worked collaboratively with us from the from the beginning, and I will give them a shout out. They do a lot in the parental world, uh, so it's really important to shout them out. Um, but yeah, Jay, I don't watch TV, and and I I I am literally a, a literature um, article academic person. So 
That's all I have. Shout out to you. Tell them to follow you. <laughs> well, thank you. But it sounds like your real answer is going to be your dissertation as soon as it's finished. Absolutely. Absolutely. Coming to a theater near you. <laughs> well, congratulations. And Brandy, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been delightful to finally connect with you after trying to do this for, for so long. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity, Jay. I'm a big fan. I am so excited to tell you about my new CBD sponsor, Roadrunner. Y'all know I love my old CBD sponsor. And I switched for one main reason. This stuff works. I've been a runner my whole life, but unfortunately I'm also super easily injured. One of my high school friends used to call me Mr. Glass. And back in 2015, when I ran my first half marathon, I got hurt, like really hurt. And since then I haven't been able to run more than three or four miles without serious pain. That is until I tried Roadrunner CBD's Muscle Gel. In a few short months, I'm regularly running five and a half to six miles each outing, and I'm currently training for my next half marathon. I don't want to call it a miracle cure, but it's damn near close. So check it out at my personal Roadrunner link, which is roadrunnercbd.com slash ref slash CYS. Again, that's roadrunnercbd.com slash ref slash CYS, or at the link in my show notes or on my podcast website, and use the code CYS at checkout to get 10% off on all of their awesome products. Check it out today. Find me on social media. Check the link in the show notes or search for me, Jay Schiffman, on YouTube and LinkedIn, and choose your struggle on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. All right, we've come to the end of another episode of the Choose Your Struggle podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Brandy. She was so vulnerable and, and dropped so much great information. Uh, I, I can't say enough. Please get involved with SAFE. They are one of the better organizations doing work in the addiction space right now. They are led by people who truly care about this issue and, you know, to have as a, 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 sort of the top three people in this organization, you know, two people who are parents who lost somebody and then led by Brandy, who is a person in long-term recovery and just gets it as you heard on this, on this podcast. So that to me says so much, you know, that, that these are people who've seen this from different sides and all truly care about this issue. And as I mentioned on the on the way in, tune into their Twitter chat on June fifteenth. It's going to be great, and and I'll be there. And look out for their uh, the the virtual roundtable that I was a part of. That will be dropping, and of course, I'll share that on all my social media and the website and all that kind of stuff. So this week's card, we're going to use the Mindful Reminders card deck, uh, and I've I've already shuffled, so I'll give you the sound. I know how many of you love that. This is your card. It's called Just One Thing. Whatever the next thing you do is, do it. But for the first minute, do it with your absolute undivided attention. Now, you know, this is something I've talked about a lot because I struggle with this a lot. Um, I am always doing two or three things at once. Just before I, I was recording this, I was on a Zoom call texting with someone who who then called me to, to follow up on a question I'd asked in the text. And I had to be like, yo, sorry, dude, uh, I'm you, you caught me while I'm in the middle of a Zoom call and texting you. And, and that 
was not a positive. I wasn't, I wasn't saying that like, yeah, look at all the things. I was like, nope, this is dumb. I'm sorry. I should be giving both of these things my undivided attention. And instead I'm giving it half. So uh, that's a thing I need to work on. And I would suggest that we all try to work on that. Uh, we, you know, time sometimes doesn't allow that. I, 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 this is a busy day for me. That's not an excuse or a defense. I, I should still do a better job of time management. And, and this is a great card, you know, at least for a minute, give whatever you're doing your undivided attention. Speaking of undivided attention, uh, my parents were in town over the weekend and uh, had a nice couple of days with them and, and Lauren walking around uh, and enjoying Philadelphia. They love the city. We really enjoyed being with them. It was 90 degrees all three days they were here, uh, and, and which was not fun, um, but but we really enjoyed being together and, and having this time together and showing them around to the parts we've already fallen in love with in, in Philadelphia was a lot of fun. So that's going to be your good egg for this uh, week. Find somebody in your life that you care about, that you love, and, and take a walk with them and just chat um, and, and, you know, it was such an enjoyable thing for us. I know it will be for you too. So do that this week, but above all else, as always be vulnerable, show your empathy, spread your love and choose your struggle.